Well, good morning, friends. Whew, what a beautiful morning it is. Okay. All right, all right. Where are we here? So, I've got, yeah, we've got the sermon title up there for you to see, and uh, just going to be finishing up, like Nathaniel sort of said uh, before he read the scripture, it's not the last sermon in Corinthians, but we've been walking all the way through Corinthians, every single, pretty much every single verse we've read, and we've tried to preach on, on all of it, um, even as, as one person has said, and as I've sort of enunciated, the texts of terror, the hard stuff, which we found to be some of the best and most helpful, because God's word is good, but oftentimes it confronts us in our misunderstanding, in our sin, um, and so, and we're going to talk about some of that today, but we're here, part three of the resurrection. Paul just majors on. This is this resurrection text toward the end of this long, fairly long letter to the church at Corinth, written about 2,000 years ago, is one of the, um, it's sort of a, it features resurrection par excellence. It's an amazing theology of the resurrection of the body, the bodily resurrection, not just that we'll live forever, but the Christ, Judeo-Christian idea that we will have bodies in a real remade creation. So this is part three, and the sermon title, uh, it's a bit of a riff, but the resurrection of the body, part three, subtitle, Your Best Life Later. Um, for those of you that get that, great. For those of you that don't, that's fine, too. Um, <laughs> little chuckle. Uh, but that's exactly what Paul is saying here, among other things. So I really believe that what he's saying is that the resurrection of Jesus means not just that your best life is later, but that but your life matters now. Like I said, in large part last week, we've been on this resurrection for two weeks now. The resurrection of Jesus means that your life actually matters now. The converse part of that is that if Jesus hadn't risen, nothing would matter now, which is why Paul ends by saying your, your labor's not in vain. He ends his text on the resurrection by saying that. So it matters now because of Jesus' resurrection, but it's a shadow of what it will be. The best is yet to come. Okay, so we're going to look at three points this morning, the mystery, the victory, and how this changes Monday. So let's just dive right into the mystery. Paul starts right off in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 50, first verse of our text. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, and when he says brothers, he means brothers and sisters. In the Greek, it's, it's tiresome to translate brothers and sisters every time, but it means both. Okay, he's speaking to all, all believers. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So flesh and blood cannot inherit God's kingdom. He starts off by saying that. Um, it takes us right back, it takes me right back to a text that gets, sheds light on this idea that as we are born, we cannot inherit God's kingdom. Who does Jesus say that to sort of most clearly? Where does he camp out on that in, in the Gospels? With what person? Nicodemus in John chapter 3, which we're about to get to in a neighborhood Bible study in a couple weeks, and I'm excited about that. But he, he clearly enunciates to a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, saying, hey, Nick, it's not enough to just try to live according to God's law. You actually, it's not, it's not something you can do. You have to be, and this blows Nicodemus's hair back, you have to be born again. Hey, we've heard this so many times. Even if you're not in the church and you know very little about Jesus, you've probably heard you know, that to be a Christian is to be born again, and that's purported, okay? That it's lost its edge. We don't react like Nicodemus reacted when Jesus told him that. Sam Albury, who is actually just, he's British, he's a British pastor, writer, um, and he, he was here a couple weeks ago, actually, and some, I think some of y'all went, I know some of y'all went, to hear him speak. He's wonderful. I, I heard uh, him talk up in Nashville on a 
a, a podcast recently, and he tells this story. He says, man, we, uh, he says, we don't get this. And let me tell you a story about something not to do to illustrate this. He said, I was, uh, he's single. He's same-sex attracted, uh, evangelical pastor that loves the Lord, uh, single man, committed to celibacy. And he says, I, I, was, uh, I had a, a friend that had a child some years ago, and it was their first child, and they were, you're always pleased as punch, you know, but you're, especially your first one, you're just glowing, you know, and um, rightly so. And he said, I looked at the child, and I said something I don't recommend saying, which is that my, he said the Lord of the Rings had just recently come out on video, and it was in my head, and I said, my, your child really looks a lot like Gollum. No joke. He said, of course, the guy, he said, that was the wrong thing to say. Guy's countenance fell, and I realize that now. And, he, and then he said as an aside, but I really do stick to my guns. The child did look like Gollum. <laughs> like, man, I hope that dude's not listening to this sermon right now. Um, but he said, the only thing that I could have done that I can think of that would have made it worse is to say, your kid actually needs to be born again. Your kid needs a redo. Your baby needs a, a do-over this time didn't cut it. The first birth wasn't good enough. Why? Because you were born into Adam as your forefather and you will die. We are born to die. It's not good enough. There's nothing we in our own strength can do about it. It's inner God's kingdom. Paul is saying here, Jesus said his whole ministry and died to prove to inner God's kingdom, to be kingdom citizens, to be children of God the Father and not Satan's children, which we are born as friends. We have to be born a second time. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, book, The Great Divorce, which is my wife's favorite, um, he talks about this in a really helpful, illustrative story. And he says that um, he basically shows how even if those in hell, once they die, they, they take a field trip. The hellions take a field trip to heaven. And, he's, and he shows through the story that even if they were given that chance, which the scriptures are clear they will not be, um, we have one, we have a chance here, and then once we die, there's, there comes ju- judgment. That's, it's a verse in the Bible, and it's very clear. But he says, even if hellions were given a chance to take a field trip to heaven, they wouldn't, it wouldn't appeal to them, and they would want to go back down to hell, in a sense. Now, again, this is all a story to bring up a bunch of points. He says at the start, I don't want to get in trouble for theologizing. It's a story, but it does bring up a lot of, a lot of truths, and one of them is that Hellions wouldn't enjoy heaven because it's suffused with the presence of God, a God whom they hate. You can't hate God's word and not submit to him and not submit to him through trusting in the son that he has sent for you and think that you would enjoy heaven, okay? Um, it's not just getting presents all the time and doing whatever you want and, uh, you know, it's, that's not what heaven is. It's, it's God's presence unfiltered. Um, the very, so when they walk on the grass, the hellions, the very grass hurts their feet. They're like wraiths. They're shadows. They're not substantial enough to enjoy reality. It would destroy them. It hurts them. It, 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 in a less deep but I think really profound uh, way, if that didn't resonate with you, let me give you this. Calvin and Hobbes, some of you are too young, but... Yeah, if you haven't read it, you need to. I think it's the best comic of all time that I've read anyway. If you're an 80s and 90s kid, which I was, um, that's when he was writing his stuff. And Calvin says to Hobbes in a, 
in a sketch. He says, if heaven is good, so Calvin's a little boy, reminds me of my son Seth. Seth has gotten into Calvin and Hobbes, and he will stay up three hours at night just pouring over these books. It's kind of scary, actually, because Calvin's a bit of a, he gets in trouble a lot. But um, Calvin says to his pet tiger Hobbes, he says, if heaven is good, and if I like to be bad, how am I supposed to be happy there? See? So we have to be remade to be able to enjoy presence with God, which is what unfiltered, which is what heaven primarily is going to be, as well as a remade cosmos, of course. Um, Jesus talks about this in a lot of ways. One of them is through a, a wineskins metaphor, and he says, we, that doesn't really resonate with us as much, but he talks about how you can't put, I've come, I've come to bring new wine, a new feasting and a new celebration and new life, and you can't put old wine into new wineskins, okay? You have to put new wine, excuse me, you can't put new wine into old wineskins because the new wine will burst the wineskins, okay? Wanting heaven and wanting God's presence without dying first and going the way of the cross and submitting to Christ by faith would burst us. It would burst us asunder. It wouldn't be loving. It would be, um, so we want heaven, but we don't want the cross first. We want the resurrection, but we don't want the cross first, okay? And that's, Jesus is just saying, and Paul is saying, you know, you have to be born again. Flesh and blood can't inherit that kingdom. It would kind of be like, if I'm gonna try to sort of modernize the, the wineskins illustration, be like given the gift of spacewalking. That would be awesome, but without a spacesuit, That would be deadly. See what I'm saying? Um, flesh and blood inheriting God's kingdom would be like setting fire to straw or wood. Whereas, if fire is set to gold or precious metal, something substantial that's different than wood or straw. You can't just, by your own effort, transfer from straw to wood. It has to be, it has to be done by the living God himself. If fire is set to metal, it purifies it. It's good for it. It creates something precious. Okay? Um, we must be changed from straw to gold. We must get a new constitution, a new character, a new makeup. That's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Is what Paul's saying here, sort of at the end of this resurrection text. But that is something that only God can do, and it's something that Jesus Christ has made possible simply in the asking because he's done all the work necessary. You see? Getting to God is not about the works that you do. It's about the work that he did in his perfect obedience and in his obedient death on the cross to his father. That's why looking to him by faith saves. Because it apprehends what he did and says, I can't do it. I can't go from straw to gold. You are giving me your very record, your very self. You took my sin. I believe. And he sends his spirit to reside in you and it changes you. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. God's spirit taking up residence in you is to go from flesh and blood to something else. It's a new birth. It's having, listen to this. This is another image, that, uh, metaphor Paul uses here and elsewhere, Romans 5. It's having a new father, a new Adam. The, when we're born, Adam, who rebelled from God and sinned and creation under him broke, is your father. You're born in sin, opposed to God, wanting to do your own thing, not wanting his rule over your life, as much as you may say you do, Okay? Going from flesh and blood to a new birth is to have the second Adam as your father, the one who loves God and gives you his heart and his constitution and his spirit, okay? Getting God's spirit in us by faith is, is to, it's like having a heart transplant. It's like getting a new ticker, okay? And that's what his spirit does. It makes us live. It makes us live. 
It's humbling because to get a new heart, to get God's spirit, again, it's not something you can do. You can't gin this up. You can't work this up. And most things in life we're used to being able to get if we work hard enough for them. Now, not everybody has that opportunity, but a lot of us do and have or are in the middle of that now. But that's not the way, that's not the, way the kingdom of God works, and that's what Paul wants to get real clear. Um, it's humbling. It's humbling to say, I can't do it. Jesus, you did it. Save me. It takes going in on our knees, right? Not doing penance, but penitence. Lord, I, I can't do it. You did it. I'm, I'm a sinner. Save me. You died for the likes of me, right? Um, we, must di- we must die with Christ to live. We must, again, pass through death to get to the resurrection. Jesus wasn't resurrected just without passing what? Through death first on a cross, and that's the route that he calls us to. So we want heaven but without the cross. But we have to say, I can't do it. I die. I die. I believe in you, Lord Jesus. And we are identified with his death. And as surely as our sins are forgiven, as we're identified with his death, we will be raised bodily just as Christ was. You see? And a proof of that is his Holy Spirit in you. You're raised spiritually now, bodily later, which is what we'll spend most of the rest of the time on this morning and what Paul spends his time on in the rest of this text. Okay? So from de- death first glory, bodily resurrection next, later. But we have to wait for that. We've had a deposit in the spirit. We've had a down payment. We've had a promise that's gonna happen. Recall, okay, all that's kind of hard. I've tried to give you different illustrations, but for that, for this, let me give you just, again, the backup, what I did last week, the acorn and the oak. It's what Paul focused on for the middle part of this text in in, uh, Corinthians 15, the acorn and the oak. The oak tree doesn't come unless there's a seed first that dies in the ground. It's just, it's the way, God's given us pictures. He's given us pictures of the way that this eternal verity works, okay? So then Paul moves on in 52 to the trumpet blast, to the trumpet blast. He says in verse 52, in a moment we shall all be changed. We'll awake from sleep in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So at the trumpet, he talks about this too to the church in Thessalonica, um, close to Corinth. And he talks about the fact that when Christ returns bodily, he's with us now by his spirit, but he, he's one place now bodily as a man, as God and as man fully. He's in heaven on the throne reigning and we are connected to him by faith through his Holy Spirit, okay? But he's returning as a man. And when he does, Paul talks about this more in 1 Thessalonians 4, the trumpet will sound, the archangel will tear open the sky as it were and he'll come in power, okay, to claim his own and to finish what he started and to recreate all things. And that's when the resurrection of the body happens. So uh, I was talking to someone earlier and they said, I just need some clarity on that. The idea being when you believe on Christ, you are forgiven, you are made right with God and you are given his Holy Spirit to connect you to God. But you will die bodily and your body will stay in the ground and you will go to be at that instant with the Lord. But not bodily. When he returns, what Paul is saying here, when he returns Those who are dead in the ground, they will rise first. And then those who are in Christ on earth still who have not died will rise to meet them, with them. They will rise after those that are already dead in the ground. And we will all meet the Lord in the air, okay? And then the way I read that text is he will come, he will keep coming down to to conquer as the king. And he will establish his reign on earth and he will bring heaven down, okay? I don't believe that in a rapture, that's a different deal. But that's, that's where they get that the rapture from that text, and I don't think that says that at all, okay? He's gonna come again, and there's, we're gonna be given resurrection bodies, and, all, and then all creation, what does Paul say in Romans 8, will follow. 
All creation will be remade, okay? Paul says, in a moment, that word in the Greek is atomo, from which we get our word atom. So just the smallest thing you can think of. In a moment, literally in a blink, in the twinkling of an eye, um, Christ will come and he'll make, he'll give us new bodies. They'd have continuity, we'll talk about this next, with our bodies now, but they're better. They're better, okay? And creation will be remade after that, right? So he says, we'll be imperishable, which simply just means not able to be corrupted. Like you, you can ding a car, but it'll sort of like, you won't be able to even ding a car. You won't be able to scratch it at all. We won't be able to be hurt. We won't be able to, be, to perish. Incorruptible. Um, what happens on the inside will happen on the outside, all right? We'll be consummated. Um, we'll also be immortal, which means we'll live forever. We won't die. Death is an alien invader. So I want to just say it's not magic that those in Christ will live forever. It's not magic. It's logical because we'll be made again of gold, of imperishable stuff. Having the spirit of Christ in us, we will get new bodies that are untainted by sin and death. And sin is what leads to death. And so we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a second too. Um, so listen, let's just, before we get to point two next, the victory, um, just finishing with the mystery here. If we can, I know a lot, this is heavy stuff. It's glorious stuff. It's not stuff we talk about or think about a lot. Unfortunately, we ought to be thinking about, and I pray that after this we will, after three weeks in the resurrection, I pray that we'll think more about, more about the resurrection, more about where we're headed, more about what's already started in us, more about that promise, more about what's coming. But it's heavy, it's, 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 uh, it's hard. So I just wanna say that creation and the recreation are connected. It's no harder to believe that God made all things and spoke them out of nothing than it is to believe that he's going to remake them. He's going to finish what he started. In fact, it's, um, I, don't, I don't know that I've ever met someone that believes that God created all things out of nothing but doesn't believe in the resurrection. And I'm sure they exist, but if you, if, if you can't believe in the resurrection, it's probably because you also find it very hard to believe in God who made all things from nothing. But the Bible clearly teaches that God spoke into the nothing and made all that we see. But then sin corrupted that. And so if he can do that out of nothing from a word, surely he can reconstitute you dust in the ground. Surely. So that's, it's, it's the same creator. It's the same faith in his power. This time manifest through Christ, Christ and his death and resurrection as not the first Adam, but the second. Okay? Um, you will have the same body, and I'll get into this in more detail, but transformed. That's, that's part of our resurrection hope, okay? Um, it'll be better, it'll be more beautiful, it'll be unbroken, and it'll, you will be fully alive. And that's part of what, all that sort of dumped into the word glory. There will be greater glory for you. Reality, what makes the, your quiddity, your essence, what makes you, you. You will be fully real. Gone are the shadows, the reality has come. It's already started in us, but it will be fully manifest forever one day. Um, and there are rare moments in our lives when we grasp this. When, we, when we, we see a sunset, we have a wonderful moment with a friend or a spouse, um, and you know we're climbing a mountain, or maybe we hear a piece of music, or we read something, and it grabs us. Whatever it is, something grabs us, and we just know that we know there's got to be something more. I know I was made for more. Um, C.S. Lewis calls this the weight of glory, which he takes from Paul. But what we try to do from that, with that is we try to bottle it up and sell it, or bottle up, capture it, bring it back, capture it, bring it, and that's where addiction is formed. 
but what if it was made as an arrow, not to be captured, but to point us to what's coming, to listen to the whisper of those things, to know that, yes, all the leaves are rustling with the reality that this, those moments are whispering to us that this is what you were made for and it's coming. So therefore, and I'll get to this at the end, and I have gotten to it already in past sermons, you don't have to grab a hold of it. It's coming. You can die to the desire to grab the gusto, to know it is coming, and to release, like the acorn in the ground, release your hold on your rag rights, because it's coming, okay? So we'll finish with that. But let's look at the victory. We've looked at the mystery. Let's look at the victory. Paul says in verse 51, we shall not all sleep. And like I said, um, I actually said this earlier to a group that was meeting for communion, but um, death becomes sleep for those who are in Christ Jesus. He makes of death, the last enemy, simply a nap, simply a nap, and a portal through which we walk to get to an indestructible, never-ending kind of life that's full of glory. Um, from, from death, after we die, we will awake, and everything else that preceded will be like it was a dream. It'll be like it was a shadow, but you are entering into the real thing, okay? Um, Plato talked about this in his own way. C.S. Lewis called this, the sh- this life the shadow lands in light of the reality that's coming. Um, it was in Plato's Republic, if you're interested, the cave image. Um, we taste the glory that's coming now. We have tastes of it, but then one day we'll feast. And the feast, like I said last week, and like we celebrate every week, the feast simply will not end. It'll just get better and better. So let's talk briefly just about exactly what is this body going to be like, okay? We shall be changed. N.T. Wright, um, British scholar and writer, says we'll have a new type of physicality. So Jesus shows us the way for this because he's the one that we've seen that has gone before us that is actually, he wasn't raised with the same body. He was raised with a new imperishable body. We will be like him. And so he's called the first fruit of a new harvest of all who trust in him, right? Um, There's a discontinuity, first of all. There's a discontinuity in the body that you'll get. So Jesus, if you look at, in, at the end of Luke, in Luke 24, he broke bread with disciples he'd revealed himself to on the, on the road to Emmaus, and then what would happen? They opened their eyes and he left. He was just gone. So you, he teleported. He was still bodily, but he teleported. He did things that he wouldn't have been able to do previously. He walked through walls in John chapter 20. They had the doors locked and he just comes through the wall. And they were like, whoa! Um, there's good evidence that he was with the Father bodily um, between his resurrection from the dead and his ascension 40 days later, okay? Um, he said, because what did he say to the thief on the cross who believed on him? One of the thieves, thieves cursed him and died in his sin, but one of the thieves believed on Christ, and what did Jesus say to him? Today, you will be with me in paradise, Okay? And there's other evidence too. So there was evidence that he was bodily able to be with the Father again, but still here as well, back and forth between two realities, two dimensions. Um, Heaven, and I always capitalize heaven for that reason. Heaven isn't a state of mind. It's not some ether up there. It's real. Okay, but we're not ready for it yet. But he, with his resurrection body, was, okay? But we with him reign in heaven. Anyway, so he was also, last point about discontinuity, he was hard to recognize. If you read closely, the end of uh, especially John and Luke, John 21, Luke 24, the disciples who had known him intimately couldn't, they were pretty sure it was Jesus when they saw him, but they weren't quite sure. Like, I know it's Jesus because he's doing Jesus stuff, but 
they, there was a discontinuity there. He had a different body that was more glorious, okay? So there's continuity too. Mary at the tomb, she was the first person to see the resurrected Christ. Um, he says her name. She thinks he's the gardener and he says, Mary. And what does she do? She recognizes him instantly and she says, Rabbi, and she falls at his feet and grabs onto him. He's like, oh, don't touch me yet. I'm in my resurrected body. I'm going to the Father. Hang on. Tell my brothers. And on he goes. But she recognizes his voice, which implies that he had the same, isn't that wonderful? The same voice. Isn't that beautiful? Um, he had the same hands, side, and feet. He, had, he still has holes so that we know part of the reason is we'll never forget the cross. We'll never forget why we're with him face to face in the new heavens and new earth. We'll never forget it's because of the cross. I don't deserve to be here, but through his grace and mercy, through the suffering and resurrection of Christ, I'm here. Through his life and death and resurrection for me. But also, I think, to show us that it's him. It's still him. He's the one who was crucified. Same hands, same side, same feet, um, but glorified. He eats also when he comes in through the wall. Um, they, he's, the disciples are freaked out, and he's like, hey, I'm not a ghost. Can a ghost eat stuff? Hey, Give me some food. And he eats a piece of uh, broiled fish and possibly, it's a textual variant, a honeycomb. Okay? So he eats. He's like, bodies, bodies eat, ghosts don't. I've got a body. I'm a person. I'm just glorified. So to give you, uh, again, to give you an image of this kind of heavy stuff, glorif a person glorified will be like, you're an acorn now, you'll be an oak tree. You see how there's continuity there? It's the same all the DNA is in there. For the, there's nothing outside. It's all there, but it's so much better. It's so much more glorious and beautiful and strong, right? So it's like the acorn and the oak. It's like a caterpillar to a butterfly. See? Um, I had the privilege um, years ago of being in the home of an old saint who had just breathed her last. She was still warm when we got she, was, she died in bed. She was an old, old woman. Uh, died actually, I believe it was in Spring Branch. Went with another pastor and died in her bed. And we were there before the paramedics got there. Didn't touch her. Um, but they said she was warm. And uh, she had Parkinson's and had since she was a girl. And one of the things that I learned that she had asked, so she died in her sleep, went to be with the Lord in spirit, but her body was buried. And one of the things she asked was that they would bury her in red shoes because, red dancing shoes, in fact, because she knew that when Christ returned, she would be raised bodily and she would be able to dance before him in a way that she couldn't here on earth. Isn't that beautiful? That has always stuck with me, and she got it. She believed in the resurrection of the body through our Lord. Um, Paul says we will have victory over death because Christ does. And let me press in here and then give some application, okay? And we're done. Um, so, in John 3.16, probably the best known, if you watch ESPN, you know, at least you know the reference, John 3.16, the best known verse in the Bible. Um, it, we are told that for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not, here's a word we don't focus on much, perish. That word, essentially, I mentioned it before, it means to be eternally unraveled, undone, because you are an eternal creature. There will be a resurrection of the body for those that end up in hell apart from God, suffering his wrath, his just wrath for their sins. We deserve it. We all deserve it. Crying out to Christ and looking to him to save us, some of us will be saved from that and to be, be with God. But a resurrected body will happen for every single eternal human being that God's made. 
And to, to be apart from God is just to be etern- eternally disintegrated, unraveled, because he is life itself. And to be apart from life is just to, it's to die forever, to be undone like a ball of yarn just pulled forever. Um, and, or like an onion, just continually unpeeled, like an eternal-sized onion, eternally unpeeled. Sin ruins us. It ruins us. And apart from God, it will ruin us forever, which is why God hates sin, because it ruins his creatures. And it's why he sent his son, listen, to be ruined in your place on the cross, okay? Um, Verses 55b through 56, Paul talks about how previously he says, look, the stinger of death is sin, but he says the power of sin comes from the law. So I just want to press into that just a little bit. Why is the sting of death sin? Um, one commentator says, death is not just an unpleasant phenomenon. A lot of us think that. I talked about this last week. A lot of times we just think death is part of the natural process. The Bible says, no, it's unnatural. We weren't made to die. And it's a penalty. It's empirical proof that you are in sin and that you were born in sin. Even if we've been delivered through Christ, we were born in sin and therefore we will die. It's a judicial sentence levied against all humanity. And death is an alien. It's an invader. It's a parasite, and it signals alienation from God, who is the source of life, okay? Um, so that's, that is how, because sin leads to death, okay? If we didn't die, we wouldn't die if we had never sinned. If sin wasn't in us, and we didn't sin, and we lived lives of perfect obedience to the Father, we simply would not die, okay? Um, so how is the law the power of sin in verse 56? Well, the law tells us exactly how we're sinning and that what we're doing is sin and, and that it's lawlessness. It shows us exactly what laws we're breaking. So your, transac- your transgression is X, Y, Z, all the laws tell us, right? Um, it's like, to use an image, it's like a magnifying glass mirror. You know those mirrors that you look at yourself and you're like, whoa, I thought I was looking good, but dang, that's way too close. You know, you could see all your pores, zits, you know, freckles with hair coming out. In my case, hair out of the ears. And you're like, I don't even want to see that, but it's there. Hey, the point is, it's there. The law shows us up close what we are doing that displeases God, okay? And that kills us. And it kills us. It spells it out. It reveals our imperfections. But here's the thing, without any power to change them. It just shows you. It just shows you. Um, for example, let me give you a few examples. Romans 7, 7, you shall not covet. Which of us have not coveted? The law goes into the heart. Or love your neighbor as yourself. That little word as. I've loved my neighbor before, but to constantly care for my neighbor as I care for myself. is what This is the kind of love that God loves his people with. We're called to that, and I break that every day. Um, forgive as, there's another scary as, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Have you ever held a grudge? Guilty. Guilty of all these, Right? Or if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Or if you've been angry at your brother or sister, you have murdered him or her in your heart. Which of us is not a murderer? Which of us is not an adulterer? Which of us has not told a lie? Which of us has not coveted? The law shows us our sin. Um, We stand guilty. It indicts us with plain letters. It outlines and delineates our sin with frightful clarity. And our sin is the cause of death. Um, in other words, like I said, if you're without sin, you would, you would live. You would never die, Romans 5, 12 and elsewhere. But we will die because we are sinners born into sin. But God is just. Um, we are only judged on what we know, 
um, Romans 5.13 and elsewhere. So we have the conscience that reveals our sin to us, but also we have the law, okay? And even if we're ignorant of the law, being privy to it is no excuse, right? If the speed limit's posted, but you've ignored it, you're still guilty, okay? But if it's not been posted and you get caught speeding, then that's something you can argue in a court of law, right? So having the law actually makes us more accountable, which actually, Paul says, provokes us. It's not just that our, the, the law outlines our sin, it provokes our sin, Paul says, right? So the law makes me, what is he saying? The law makes me want to break it. Why? Because I'm bad. The law is good, but I'm bad, and it, it sort of rustles up like a stick with dirt in the water. It just, it, it, it muddies the water. It rustles up the mud in the water. It makes me want to break it because of my sin nature. It's not that the law is bad, it's that I am, and it shows my badness. So one example, I, um, I was at the IMAX in the um, Museum of Natural Science years ago, and there was, I was at the top row, I think we're on a field trip, classic getting in trouble location for a dude in high school. I think it was in high school. And we were at the top uh, row, and there was a little rail, because it was the top row for some reason, just big enough for my feet to go on. And I noticed right before I had that thought or right after, there was a, a sign that said, don't, um, don't put your, this is a handrail, don't put your feet on this rail. And I don't, I don't think that it had, it had occurred to me before that to use it as an ottoman, but as soon as I saw that sign, what do you think my next action was? Of course, I put my feet on that rail. That it prov- seeing the law provoked me to want to break the law. That's just what the law does to us. It provokes my badness. It's like my, my wife seeing a roach and wanting to scream, okay? It just, the roach or the perceived roach provokes this guttural, unavoidable <laughs> cry, and I can tell by the nature of the cry, wherever she is in the house, I remember we had a bunch of women from the church in our house uh, about a year ago, and I heard them all, ah! they're having like a Bible study, and I was like, roach time, like I just ran in there with a the shoe. They were all up on the couch, you know? And um, just like that, the law provokes our sin. It provokes our sin. It makes us want to break it. Um, but here's the, here's the thing. The law leaves us in one of two places, and both of them are bad. Convinced that we've not kept it, we despair. But here's the worst thing. Sometimes if we don't read the law closely enough or we think better of ourselves than we ought to, we can be convinced that we have kept it and we get proud. The law made the, most of the Pharisees very proud. It makes a lot of pastors and a lot of Christians proud. And let me tell you, friends, it's better to be led to despair by the law because knowing that we can't keep it, there's a law keeper that has stood in our place. So either way, the law could put us in a bad place, a bad place. Um, and you can't unbreak a law because God is just. Um, you can't unbreak a law. If the heart is the reason that we're law-breaking, you, can't, you don't have the power to give yourself a heart transplant, to get a new heart. That is something that has to come from the outside, and indeed it has. So in verse 40, 54 here, Paul talks about how this, this glorious verse where he's pulling from the Old Testament, he says, death has been swallowed up in victory, and he's quoting from Isaiah 25, verse 8, which was written 700 years before as a prophecy of Christ that would come and do this. For, the, for context, let me read verse 7 as well. This is from Isaiah 25, and he will swallow up, this is 700 years before Christ prophesying about what the Messiah is going to do. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. That's what Paul quotes. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take from all the earth. 
for the Lord has spoken. Y'all, this, is, this language speaks to more than just individual salvation. Not less, but more. It speaks to a total creational renewal. He's gonna take away the shadow and the curse from all nations. He's gonna redo things. But he proceeds, Isaiah does in 25, with the next verse. Listen to this, with an astonishing image. He says, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. You know Jerusalem's on a mountain. It's a, one of the highest, it's the highest place around. It's ringed by mountains, but it's also the high. You have to go up to Jerusalem. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. Here's the image. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. Breaststroke, think of breaststroke like that. Through a mighty act on a mountain whereby God will spread his hands out, Isaiah says, 700 years before Jesus, he will bury death. He will pull back the reproach that has been the darkness that has been over all nations. He will invite people from every tribe and nation and tongue and both sexes, young and old, no discrimination, to come to him because he has done the work necessary for us to be right with God and for the curse to be done away with. Okay, he's gonna start a new creation as the second Adam. And Isaiah is talking about something that he might have known, not, not have known of, but put in that way we can see. He's talking about the conquest of God through Christ at the cross. Um, God's great act of creational renewal his plan through Messiah to begin again, to remake the worlds, to swallow death on a mountain. You think he's gonna come down in power. What does he do? Through death himself on a cross, he defeats death. Again, John Owen's sermon, the death of death in the death of Christ. Um, I think of a man swallowed by a snake who then gets inside the snake and takes a knife out of his pocket the snake wasn't aware of and just cuts that snake open. It's a disgusting image, I know. But it's a picture in one way of what Christ did to death. He killed death when death swallowed him, okay? Um, and then verse 55, Paul quotes from not Isaiah, but Hosea. Um, at the end of Hosea 13, Hosea 13 verse 14, um, he quotes from Hosea when he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But the thing about Hosea, you gotta read all these in the context that the author of the New Testament takes them out of. What, what's Hosea? What's the book of Hosea? And he's, taught, he's called to marry a prostitute. The prophet Hosea is called to marry a prostitute to show what Israel has done. God's people have done to him. They've committed adultery against him in their sin. And so have we. We're all guilty. And sin is something God takes personally because he wants a personal, intimate relationship him, with him. And it's running after other lovers. And so Hosea, that, that pervades the book of Hosea. And um, how can, here's the question, how can God say this and give this kind of promise, oh, death, where's your victory? To an adulterous and wayward people. And the answer we know is Jesus. Jesus was treated like an adulterer. He was treated like a murderer. He took our place on the cross and he became our sin so that he could be punished and we could be cleared. And then he gave us his righteous obedience to God, his father from the heart. And that's what faith apprehends. And that's what faith receives. Okay. It's beautiful. 
Um, what does Paul say in response to this? He says, victory, that word, we all know it, it's Nike. You know, winged victory in the Louvre, that, that statue without arms, is that right? With the wings, though, it's uh, winged Nike, right? Nike means victory, so it's a great name for an athletics company. Um, but he's saying Nike here, victory. We have the victory in the face of death because death has been defeated through Christ. Sin is the deadly sting that has led to death, says Gordon Fee. Thus, Christ's resurrection signals not just his victory over his death, because it wasn't over his death, it was over capital D death, the power that death had over us all because of sin, okay? There's no longer any power. So whereas before, uh, death was like an iron gate on a fortress, now it's been opened wide on its hinges and Christ is the key master, Revelation 1, and he holds the keys. And any who die in Christ are free to walk out and we'll go be with him and one day we'll be resurrected bodily. Um, so how does this, so Fee, Fee closes by saying both sin and the law were overcome at the cross, okay? Um, the stinger of death is sin and the power of sin is the law and Christ took care of those on the cross. Um, how does this change Monday? Last point and most brief how does this change Monday? Um, N.T. Wright notes that Paul surprises us with the way that he finishes this encomium on the resurrection. He surprises us. Um, in light of all that Paul's just written, again, not just these past eight verses, but these past 58 on the resurrection, we might expect a finish like, therefore, brothers and sisters, look forward eagerly to the hope that is set before you in the resurrection. That's not what he says, though. That's not what he says. Instead, he says something like, in light of the resurrection, get to work. Get to work. Now, how, um, how do the, these future truths that Paul lays before the Corinthians, um, how do they affect the present, okay? How do they direct us and the Corinthians to the present? Um, well, first of all, because, again, remember what I said last week and sort of mentioned briefly this week, because of the resurrection, heat death, a universal heat death is not the end. You dead and cold in the ground six feet under or, or burned to ashes and spread out over a mountain or the sea or wherever you, however you decide for your body to be, that's not the end. If you're in Christ, you will be resurrected to a glorious, from an acorn to an oak, to a glorious, incorruptible, imperishable life. And what's the most beautiful thing that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 when the trumpet sounds and the Lord returns bodily? It says, and thus we shall be with him always. Isn't that maybe the most, one of the most sublime bits of a verse in the entire Bible? And thus we shall be, isn't that the center, the crux of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be? How am I gonna enjoy heaven if I'm so bad, if you have to be good? See, it's a remaking it's the spirit of Christ in us, our sins nailed to the cross through his work so that we can actually want him, love him. Yes, continue to sin, but sorrow over sins, repenting and wanting to be with him and knowing that he has made a way through his own body and blood for us to be at peace with him and his father, okay? Um, so, so because of the resurrection, Everything matters. Everything matters. Remember, I, I quote this all the time, but Martin Luther, the reformer, he was asked, um, if you know Christ is coming tomorrow, what will you do today? And a lot of us will be like, I'm gonna jump out of a plane with, no, with a parachute, you know, or whatever. I'm gonna go do this or that. Um, I'm gonna do the squirrel gliding thing off a cliff. I don't know what you'd do. Maybe you'd just read a book with a cup of coffee. That's your idea of paradise. But um, Martin Luther said something even stranger. He said, I'd plant a tree. Think of how well it would do. 
In other words, he got that every seed in this creation by faith in Christ, through the, knowing the work that he has done and what is coming, okay, and the kingdom that he's building, especially through your sacrifice, with, through faith in what he's done, every seed you plant will grow up to something that is so glorious and so beautiful, incorruptible and imperishable. Remember, it's not just you, it's creation that you won't even be able to believe it, okay? But those seeds are deaths in the ground, and that's okay. That's what life comes from through the economy of the kingdom of Christ because of his cross, okay? So I'd plant a tree. Think of how well it would do in the new creation. So in two words, um, how, how does this change your Monday? Plant seeds. And seeds require death, not holding on to their rag rights, but surrendering, knowing that we don't have to grab the gusto because it is coming. And the work, all the work has been done necessary for us to be at peace with God and what to invite others into that. There's nothing you have to do, friend. Just come and look at what he's done. And he is the maker and sustainer and lover of your soul. And, to, and one day we will be with him face to face. You'll get to hug him. He will wipe away the tears from your eyes. And we'll be with him always, what we are created for. Um, there's a, there's a, something I came across re, more, most recently through that Sam Albury talk. He, I've heard it before, but he mentions it. And it's a little sort of a fridge, fridge magnet phrase. And it says, those who hear not the music think the dancer's mad. Those who don't hear the music that's playing think the dancer's mad. So if you're hearing music that no one else hears, you're going to be acting in a, in a way that looks absurd. Like if you watch a music video and turn down the music, they just look like idiots, right? The mu- hearing the music of the worlds that are coming, of the resurrection, means that we can spend ourselves in a way that isn't trying to build our kingdom. But it's, it's planting seeds in the ground that die and surrendering to our rights because we know that everything's been done for us. It's all been given to us. It's coming. We, we should look, in light of the resurrection, resurrection, our lives should look insane. And the only thing that should make sense of them is the bodily resurrection and the remaking of the worlds. We should spend ourselves on things and in ways that look crazy, crazy to the world. I'd plant a tree. Think of how well it would do. Um, again, it's not your best life now. It's coming. So, this is so much more realistic and compelling in, in, in this and then I close. Um, it's so much more realistic and compelling than your best life now. Because what? It makes sense of suffering and not only that, but it helps because again, the, what's the path to resurrection? The cross. It also shows us that through the cross and through release and through death and through suffering and through pain, this is one of the chief ways that God builds his kingdom and works on you and makes you like Jesus. It's not a loss. It's not nonsensical. It's part of his plan to remake all things in Christ. It's the path to resurrection, don't you see? Your best life now does none of that for you. None of that. It makes sense of our lives here and it shows us that the best is yet to come. Um, as C.S. Lewis, close with him, wrote somewhere, the cross comes before the crown, though, and tomorrow is a Monday morning. So get after it, friends, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for your word. Thanks for the truth of the cross of Christ and the fact that he did not stay dead. He died to rise as the second Adam, a new man for a new creation. 
and resurrected, he's the first fruits of a harvest that's coming, and we're part of that, Lord. And if anyone here is not part of that, I pray that they would be part of that today, that they would come to you, arms outstretched for them, showing you how much you love, showing them how much you love them, Lord. I pray that through this body, through the faith that you give us, through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the work of Christ, through his reign and his imminent return, that you would cause new creation to go forth, that we would be seed scatters here. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.